Good morning. The uh, passage upon which the teaching is based this morning is John 13, verses 31 through 38. You can turn there either in your Bibles or in your worship guide. And if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Today we're talking about love and what is love. It's a word that we throw around and we use in lots of different ways. You have love in the sense of passion and, you know, and all the animals come out in the spring and Bambi. They all see their counterparts and they become Twitterpated. And that's love. It's that feeling, that, that, that notion of, of desire and passion or love could be viewed as friendship. Right? What a, when Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are in South America and all the South American troops have come against them and they've gone through thick and thin together and then leap out to their death together, that's real friendship, that's real love. Or Sometimes we think of love simply as service, as someone who has committed themselves. You know, We might think of many of the great Christian missionaries throughout history where they've devoted their life to serving other people. And we say, well, that's real love. That level of devotion or that level of service. And sometimes we use the word in very mundane ways. I love pizza. I love ice cream. Love is a term that we throw around. We apply in every which way. But here Jesus commands us to love one another as I have loved you. It's not a use of the word love that has the same, that permits us to have the same latitude in understanding it and thinking through how we apply it in our lives and to one another. What does it mean that we are to love as Jesus has loved us? Well, John, as we'll see, clearly has in mind the cross, which means that we are being called to love one another in a way that gives evidence to, that reflects, that points back to the love that expressed, that is expressed by God to us in the cross. That's a pretty radical definition of love. How in the world do I go about doing that? Actually embodying that kind of love. And here's a very real question. Why would I want to? That doesn't sound attractive at all. It sounds like death. And so why would we engage it? Well, let's look to our passage and see if it offers some answers. In verse 31, it says, After he had gone out, and then it says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Well, who's the he? The he is Judas. 
He's gone out to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. And it is at this moment of betrayal that Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. This moment of death that is dawned, this moment now that the, the dominoes have been, have been knocked down and are in motion for me to end up on the cross. And now that that has occurred, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified and the Father to be glorified in the Son. In other words, this moment of death is the moment of utmost glory for God. It is the apex of his revelation of what it means to love. And this is what John has been hinting at. He's been presenting Jesus to us as the Passover lamb, that this great act of love will culminate in the sacrifice of Jesus so that we might be redeemed. And shortly, in just a chapter or so, Jesus will say, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Realize that glory is revealed in weakness, in humility, in something that's awful. And that requires us to rethink our notions of glory. Right? Culturally, society would teach us to pursue glory in very different ways than pursuing it in the cross. But here, God's saying, no, my glory is most manifest in the cross. And this is the uh, the expression of my love, and you are called to reflect this love, to love as I have loved you. Perhaps, you know, just from a personal note, glory for me is probably preaching the best sermon ever. Maybe glory for me is really staying up late and grieving with one of you over some loss. What is glory for you? Maybe to be the best mom ever or to be the most dominant, proficient person at your work ever. That's how we think in terms of glory, but maybe glory really for you is is reflecting the cross and laying down your rights, laying down what you perceive to be your privileges and actually serving one another. Maybe glory for you is actually cleaning up after a first Sunday meal. You know what, what's really funny is to watch First Sunday. Because this is what, what happens. People gather and people eat, and everyone has a good time. And people start to leave, and it's a pretty general, consistent trickle as people head out. You get to right around 40% of the original attending audience. And in the next 10 minutes, 40% to 10% will leave. Why? Because everybody starts talking and looking around and realizes, if I stay much longer, I'm going to get roped into cleanup. And there's a mass exodus until you have 10% left who actually do the cleanup. And it's very often the same 10%, the same people. Maybe reflecting God's glory is actually serving one another. And it doesn't, my point isn't that everyone stays and cleans up next week. But it is to reflect upon how we perceive glory and how we may participate in it. We had an intern once, and the intern uh, made the argument that he shouldn't have to wipe down tables after first Sunday meal. He said, I should be set aside for teaching and for prayer based on Acts 6. And I thought to myself, you're not going to be here very long. And he wasn't, because he didn't understand at all John 13. Understanding that God's glory is bound up in, this, in the cross is, is how we go about understanding His love. They're intimately connected that this act, this revelation of God's glory is a revelation of His profound love. He is glorified because He, he reveals to us a love that cannot be comprehended. 
that is quite simply beyond us. And yet we aspire, we are called to aspire to it. See, in verse 33, Jesus says, Yet a little while I am with you, and where I am going you cannot come. Of course, he's speaking about going to his death. And little do the disciples know that it's to their benefit that at this point they can't follow because it would simply be following to their death. Jesus says, In my absence there is a way for you to live that will testify to me. There's a way for my presence to go on in the midst of your life together, and that is that we would love one another as Jesus has loved us. Now, in one sense, love one another is hardly unique, right? Have we not heard that ad infinitum since the 1960s? Love, love, love. Doesn't every, basically every religion and philosophy of the world advocate that you would love one another? Nathan sent me an interesting article this week from the LA Times. It was by Phil Zuckerman, who's a professor of sociology and a uh, secularist. And he was uh, noting that in the, 19, only, in the 1950s, only 4% of Americans grew up in non-religious households. If you fast forward to the 1970s, that jumped by to 11%. So more than doubled in the span of 20 years. Dramatic shift in American history. Which is why today that for those between the ages of 18 and 29, 30% claim to be no, have no religion. They're what's referred to now as the nuns, not having any religious affiliation. So one of the questions that has been debated culturally is, well, what does that mean for us as a nation ethically? If there's no religious story informing how we define right and wrong, what's going to happen to us as a culture? And Zuckerman says you know what, we're better off. And he goes through a number of statistics that might indicate that uh, that secular kids, kids that grow up with no religion, actually end up more ethical than children who grow up in houses with some sort of religion. Now, there's a number of problems with the article, but one of the interesting aspects is that he defines ethics simply as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you that this is the baseline for all philosophies and religions, which quickly revealed that, A, he doesn't know very much about Christianity, but, B, also that uh, that kind of notion works very well until you experience, I don't know, life. right? Because no one or few people or many people are not doing unto you as you would have them do unto you, which makes it very difficult for you to do unto them as you, you would have them do unto you. And it seems very unfair and unjust, and there are all kinds of problems, and why should I be sacrificing in that way? And we see here that the Christian version of ethics is not simply the golden rule, but in the new covenant, Jesus actually provides a new command. Characterizes the entire ethics. It's not love as you would be loved, it's love as I have loved you. Loved as I have embodied my love in the cross. Well, that is... Pretty astonishingly difficult, as we've said. So why would we go down that road? Why would you actually pursue to love in a way that reflects the cross? In one sense, I want you to realize that it's actually incredibly life-giving. Zach showed me a fascinating article, uh, a guy who's writing a book um, on addiction. And addiction is a much-debated topic in our culture. You have the old and dominant story that addiction is the result 
You know, everyone's brain is wired a little bit differently, and you, you partake of a chemical substance, and for some people, that's going to light up their brain. And then they're going to be hooked on those chemical things going on in the brain. And that's kind of the reigning theory of uh, addiction. But something really fascinating happened in the Vietnam, or just after the Vietnam War, that, that threw everybody for a loop who was studying addiction. Uh, but just before, or as the Vietnam War was ending, the United States government felt like an impending crisis was about to hit. And that crisis was uh, the servicemen coming home who uh, large, significant percentages of were addicted to heroin. Uh, Time magazine said toward the end of the Vietnam War that uh, taking heroin or being addicted to heroin was as common as chewing gum for Vietnam soldiers in Vietnam. So they said, we're about to, we're about to experience this enormous uh, addiction culturally as all these servicemen come home. But the thing was, as they came home, uh, roughly 95% didn't continue using or abusing heroin in any fashion. And this was actually commissioned as a study that the government was preparing to handle this before it actually happened. And so everyone was flabbergasted to the extent that addiction specialists said the study can't be right for years, decades. So they can't be, it just can't be believed. There's no way. Simply by coming home, addiction doesn't end. They led one, uh, psychologist Bruce Alexander in the 70s to do additional studies and so and wanted to see really how addiction worked. And so he would take rats and he would put them in a cage and he would give them a bottle of water of water and he would give them a bottle of water that was laced either with heroin or cocaine and see what the rat did. And so the rat proceeded basically to uh, opt for the cocaine or heroin laced water bottle and drink itself to death. Said, okay, that's interesting, but what's going to happen if we change the cage, if we change the scenario? And so he created Ratland, which was basically this fun place for rats. You had balls and tunnels and little wheels, but you also introduced a community of rats living together. And when you put the rats in Ratland and offer two water bottles, the same two water bottles, they almost ignored the one that was drug-laced and preferred the one that was only water. He said, well, that's interesting. They don't seem to be interested here, but maybe they're just more addicted to the fun and all that. And so um, he said, I wonder if we, uh, if we, what would happen if we put a, a rat, excuse me, that was already addicted to drugs in Ratland? Right? Not just give them a preference once they're in Ratland, but make sure that they're addicted. So for 57 days, he gets them hooked on cocaine or heroin and then moves the rat to Ratland. And the vast majority, almost without exception, quit the drug once they were living in Ratland. And it, it's been a problem ever since for the reigning theory of addiction. You know, there's the liberal view, it might be characterized as a liberal view, that this is simply a disease, and if you have this disease, you're going to be subject to this chemical reliance. Or a more conservative take, which that addiction is simply a moral failing due to too much partying. Uh, Bruce Alexander argued that no, it's the cage that affects addiction. That's what shapes one's disposition, whether a real cage or perceived cage, to actually be addicted. And he said, he argues one of the things that plays this out is medical patients. Medical patients re receive a purer form of many of the street drugs than you would receive on the street, and yet very few medical patients become addicted to their drugs. They leave the hospital, they stop taking the drug after a few months, and they go on with their lives. 
If you gave that same drug to a street person who's addicted to the drug, it would just further their addiction. So what is the difference? Again, it's the perceived cage between those people. It led the author to write, the street addict is like the rats in the first cage, isolated, alone, with only one source of solace to turn to. You know, there are many factors. Part of it is Ratland in general, but one of the most important factors was the presence of community. Was the presence of rats, was the presence of homes that welcomed the servicemen home from Vietnam, is the presence of homes that welcomed patients. The cage that they existed in during perhaps a time of addiction ceased to be. It was remedied by the presence of community. And in this, we see how important it is to, to love one another well. You know, it is to, perhaps in part to the degree that that as we love one another at expense to ourselves and reflect the cross, that we actually allow one another to not only to be healthy in this, this kind of secularized version of the importance of community, but even more so that we would actually experience the presence of the living Christ in his body. Right? That when we serve one another, as, as, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, it, it, once we, when we engage in that practice, we're not We're not just doing it on behalf of the person, but for Christ himself. And we experience him in a remarkable, mystical way in the act of trying to embody that love. How in the world do we really engage this? As you read down in verse 37, the disciples obviously are somewhat distraught at the notion of Jesus departing. This would be a hard notion for them to take, something unexpected, and it's particularly difficult for Peter. And Peter can't understand. He says, why can't I come with you? Where could you possibly be going that I wouldn't be permitted to come? Well, listen, we followed you for three years. Why why would you? Imagine the heartache. This, This can't be how the story ends, that you just leave, and we're left here. And he says, why? Why can't I come with you? I deserve to come with you. I would lay down... My life for you. Jesus says, really? Before morning comes, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. See, what's what's so remarkable about this passage is the background. Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples, which has included Judas, who proceeds immediately from having his feet washed by the Son of God to betraying Jesus to the religious authorities. And Jesus now, after having washed all the feet of the disciples and commanding them to love him, all of the disciples will desert him. And Peter here can't be, can't say something that is true, can't love Jesus as Jesus has loved him, even for the few moments that have followed all these things that have transpired. He, he has not been faithful to the command of Jesus for one hour. He's failed. And yet, in all of these failures and Jesus' complete abandonment, He loves them to the cross. He embraces them. He won't hesitate, as we'll see at the end of John, to restore Peter. It is wonder and compassion that He would be so committed to them. A promise that Peter can't keep doesn't matter. Jesus embraces those who will betray Him. And we realize that if we want to be the kind of people who embrace one another and reflect the cross in that embracing, 
then we have to be embraced by Jesus. If we're, if we're not going to be embraced by Jesus, then we're not going to have the power or the strength to embrace others. It's going to be too hard and too vulnerable and we're going to pull back. It's hard for particularly for those of you who have grown up in homes and you did not see that kind of love. I have a friend and in his marriage, his, his wife will sometimes seek to love him well. But there's a point where she's loving him really, really well. I mean that sincerely. And he, he panics, kind of shuts down. He has to pull away from that degree of love. Why? Because he never saw it growing up. And he learned to live of his own accord. And he says, if, if I'm going to be loved to that extent, I don't know really if I can trust it because the people who were supposed to love me like that when I was growing up didn't. And so I've been burned several times in the worst possible way. So now to entrust myself to love like that, that's incredibly scary. And I'm not going to dare. It's safer to not do it. Because what if I'm burned again, even by this person who I'm even closer to? The same thing goes on in much of our hearts in, in, in coming to Christ. And Jesus would embrace us in our sinfulness. He would embrace us in our betrayal. We're no different than Peter denying him. We're no different than the disciples scattering when the heat gets turned up. And yet it's that embracing that makes us feel, wow, can I be loved to that degree? It's very, if I'm loved to that degree, if Jesus loves me in that way, that means that, that he knows me and he knows how, how disgusting I am. There's nothing that's behind closed doors and still he embraces me. That means that I am completely his if I surrender to that, that I am completely owned by Him, that I have no recourse for myself. And in that, I would argue there is complete freedom. It is the only freedom on the face of this earth. From the brokenness that we are born into and the brokenness in which we grow, it is that love of Christ that frees us. And it is why the greatest thing that we have to hold on display and to extend to one another is the love that reflects the love that He has demonstrated to us. Realize how powerful that is and how powerful it would be in our midst if we demonstrated that kind of love. In the last year, there have been an, uh, it's been quite a, uh, a focus, a degree of attention on Rwanda. If you were alive and uh, old enough to pay attention in 1994, you remember that there was um, a, an insane genocide that occurred in Rwanda in 1994. Historically in Rwanda, there have always been two people groups, and it hasn't been a big deal for most of the country's history, the Tutsis and the Hutus. And the Tutsis were herders. They dealt with animals, and the, the Hutus were farmers. They grew the crops. And you know what? You need both. And culture got along just fine until colonization. When the Belgians showed up, they decided to, they needed somebody to rule through, and so they gave privileges to the Tutsis. And the Hutus, which were the majority, were then under the Tutsis. And this created remarkable class conflicts. But fast forward to 1994, there's lots of uh, hatred. Even though, the, you know, the same people who have survived together in peace have now spent a century in animosity toward one another. And 
much like World War II, there's a straw that breaks the camel's back. A plane is shot down who had the president of the country who was Hutu, or who was Tutsi, or who was Hutu. who was Hutu, and uh, the Tutsis were blamed for shooting the plane down and the president dying. But I would not hesitate to use the word um, demonic in what happened that day and in the subsequent days. It was a relatively short window, a matter of months, in which the Hutus went on a killing rampage, taking the lives of approximately 800,000 fellow Rwandans. Sometimes by gun and sometimes by grenade, but often with the, the hoe they had in their backyard or the machete that was sitting, you know, in the garden. Now, what you have to imagine is this is, these are, every town, you don't have Hutus and Tutsi towns. They all live together. So start to imagine that, you know, genocide has passed. You're, you're a few years down the road, but Think of your neighbor down, down the street, two or three doors. He killed your family. That's the situation in Rwanda. You're living right next to the people who slaughtered your family. And so how do you come back together as a country after this insane thing happens and you're surrounded by murderers, people who have participated in the decimation of your families? Many, many people lost their, their entire family, their children, their husbands, their parents. Wiped out. And how do you go on with life? And so many, many agencies have entered Rwanda trying to move the country forward in a healthy direction. Many of those are particularly Christian, and they tell the story of a God who embraces those who persecute him so that peace might be had. And then what comes as a result of that is in some cases, is profound reconciliation. Where someone becomes friends, you know, the person repents who engaged in the murder, asks for forgiveness, and the relationship is built, and then they might even start, um, there are ways in which they promote that relationship, like opening a business together. There's two men own a cow together who were alienated, which is in Rwanda is kind of like owning a 7-Eleven together. Right? It's a big deal in Rwanda. And so the relationship grows in the midst of such strife. And so there are a number of accounts, but one woman uh, writes this after, after the genocide 20 years ago. Speaking of um, the man that she's come to know, he killed my child, then he came to ask me pardon. I immediately granted it to him because he did not do it by himself. He was haunted by the devil. I was pleased by the way he testified to the crime instead of keeping it in hiding. Because it hurts if someone keeps hiding a crime he committed against you. Before, when I had not yet granted him pardon, he could not come close to me. I treated him like my enemy, but now I would rather treat him like my own child. Can you imagine of being able to say that about the person who took your actual child from you? Where does that come from? How does one have the ability to love to that degree? In this case, it comes from the power that is represented on the cross. And do you understand what Jesus is saying when he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples? When you look at a story like that and reconciliation like that, where do you see that? How do you... 
It's the power of the cross and the resurrection being worked out in the midst of the lives of people. And to the degree that we love one another in that way, that we lay down what we perceive to be our rights and our privileges and our perceptions of justice and what should happen. And in that, we seek to love someone in the way that we have been loved by Christ. We reveal Him to the world and we experience the freedom that He offers. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your perfect and unending love. And we ask humbly that you, forgiving our lack of love, would move us in a way to show great compassion and great sacrifice and great mercy and to to ask ourselves, what does it mean to embody the love of the cross to the people sitting to my right and left? What does it mean to embody the love of the cross to my spouse and to my children? And in this, we pray that we would be transformed and freed from the brutality of anger and hatred and from the brutality of separating ourselves from your love. We pray that as our veins are cut and bleed on behalf of those around us, that your blood would course through us. And in that, we would know life. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.